All right, welcome to episode eight of the Best Side Podcast. Now, this one is definitely one that I know people have been lo- waiting for for a long time. Uh, it's one I'm definitely excited to be bringing you today, and it's one that has stuck with me ever since we sat down and had the quarter all. Now, Al Belushi, uh, a lot of people know her as one half of the magnificent working space that is in the CBD of New Plymouth Taranaki, known as Johnson Corner. Uh, not other, a lot of other people know her for all sorts of different things, a bit of event management here and there. Uh, I know she's a massive, massive spokesperson and advocate for mental health uh, locally as well, and you know that... If you haven't heard any of those things where you're about to get a crash course and get introduced to a lot of those themes in our corridor uh, that we had for episode 8 of the podcast, and that was absolutely crazy. You know, when I was a kid, I used to love comic books, uh, and one of my favorite comic book characters uh, was Phoenix, or some people call her Dark Phoenix. Now, don't get it twisted with a movie that came out recently. A lot of people might be comparing it to that and thinking that's a bit weird. Um, no, Phoenix in the time was the Mac Daddy of all x-men characters and when i was sitting with al um not just because the red hair but when i was sitting with al a lot of things started coming up and, and his story kind of speaks of having um gone through a lot of stuff and then using that as your superpower and then using that superpower to save a lot of people uh, which i know sounds incredibly corny uh, but trust me when you listen to the story it, it's all going to make sense these themes in here talking about um, battles with depression and all sorts of mental illness um, addictions as well um, so yeah it gets it gets pretty intense uh, so yeah I don't know what else to say really I'm kind of at a loss for words I'm just excited for you to sink your teeth into it so thank you for joining me on the podcast episode 8 we've come a long way check it out let me know what you think and I grew up in, born and raised in Taranaki. Um, grew up on a little farmlet with my two siblings and my mum and dad. Had a pretty normal childhood. Um, and I was here up until around 18. Sweet. And whereabouts in Taranaki? Uh, just out of town. So we were, we were at Frankly Road, so just 10 minutes from the CBD. Yep. My little farmlet there. A lot more developed now, eh? Than yeah, what it was. Yeah, I mean... Real, where we were, it's not too bad. We were more up the, the, the top end, of it, frankly. But yeah, going up there is a little bit different now nowadays. So you're here until you're 18? Yeah. Where did you go to school and stuff? I went to school at Frankly Primary, then on to Highlands. I actually went out to St Mary's to boarding school. Oh, cool. Um, up until end of fifth form. Then I came back to New Plymouth and went to New Plymouth Girls High. I always remember St Mary's having the best school balls when I was in high school. Did you Did you get it on time? You might have been. You might have missed out at that age. Yeah, I missed out. I think they stopped. I don't know. They stopped doing balls. I think maybe. Oh, most schools have now. Yeah. It's, it's a strange thing. So uh, yeah, I didn't actually go to a St Mary's one. Kids are too out the gate for school balls these days. I think it was the after parties that ruined it for everybody. Yeah. Um. So we went from. So from eighteen, you left Taranaki, or what happened yeah, after there? I left Taranaki. I. Actually, that, that's a lie. I think I left when I was 20. I studied in, at WIT, but I left school early because I knew what I wanted to do, and I went on to study fashion design. Cool. Um, and then a couple of years later, I moved to Wellington and just got a job in retail down there after I finished my studies. What was the attraction to fashion? I took a subject at school called art design, and we did a whole term on sort of like fashion and design, and I just really took to it. I'd always been quite creative in my dressing and like making stuff, pulling up my sewing machine and putting outfits together. Yeah. It was just something that I was really drawn to. I've always had that creative side of me and I've always needed that creative out there. Um, and so I decided to yeah, leave school a year early and just get on and do it. Were there other things that you um, used as to, to manifest, I guess, your creativity. So there was the fashion stuff. Was there other stuff? Did you do any music, or did you? Is there anything like that that you did? I did music as a yeah, like as a young child, but I never really took to it. I didn't really like doing many extracurricular activities. I was a very homebody and just wanted to be around my parents all the time. Yep. Um, but yeah, like every subject. That's why I moved to Girls High really because the options at St Mary's were really limited. 
Um, but I took all the art subjects, I took photography, like anything really. And I really like the tactile kind of creativity. Mm. So like drawing and, and like really getting my hands messy and pottery. And As you speak, your hands move around a lot. And yeah. usually that's a sign of a textile, like yeah. tactile sort of person. I'm so. not so good at the, the just like sitting down and drawing really, but like really getting into like projects and building things is my kind of thing. Cool. And what drew you to Wellington? Uh, I'd always loved Wellington. A lot of my friends went down there um, to university, so I had like a huge crew there. Mm. Um, but it's just a little bit more creative and funky, and yeah, it's, it's got a lot more character, I guess. I'm just really never drawn to Auckland, and just I just needed a change in environment. There was a lot of stuff going on in my life around that time. Um, and so just getting out of Tatamaki is what I felt like I needed to do then. A lot of stuff happening at home, or...? Um, just in my life in general, I think that I, I'd already been struggling with my mental illness for about four years, started when I was about 14, um, and I'd broken up with my long-term partner around that time, and so there was just a lot of changes going on in my life, and I felt like a new environment could might maybe help with getting out of that funk. Yeah. yeah. So obviously you've mentioned the mental illness yeah. and it's something, uh, for lack of a better term, don't take this the wrong way, I've heard your name attached to a lot of conversations I have with people, they, they mention your story. Um, the hardest thing about my podcast and what I'm doing, and we've laughed about this before, is that I, I don't do much research, I kind of just try and come in raw, so obviously I don't know anything about it, so can you walk us through, you said 14, you started going through it, or you had been going it since that age, or is that when you came to know about it really, but you have going through it longer? Yeah, so I'll give you a little bit of context, I struggled with it for 14 years, and I can't exactly pinpoint an exact moment of when it started, because I, like, you, I didn't really understand what it was when it was first happening. Mm-hmm. There wasn't much talk about it back then. Um, and so if I look back now, I think that it started when I was around 14. Uh, I just noticed there were a lot of days where I would feel really down. There were days when I would just cry and cry and cry and couldn't stop and I didn't know where those emotions were coming from. Mm. Um, and like I said, I didn't understand what it was. I didn't, I didn't know what the concept of depression was then. No one talked about it. You know, it was just not out there. And so I kind of just dealt with it. And um, it carried on for probably about a year. And then I discovered ways that would help with these emotions. And that came through ways that I would control um, my body and what I'd feed it. So I developed addictions to like uh, restricting my eating and also uh, I became bulimic. So I would eat and purge. Mm. And those were the ways that I guess helped me control the, the feelings that I didn't understand what, like, what was going on inside my brain, yeah. my thoughts. So you mentioned that you've you spent like days or days when you were just crying, crying, crying. Were there moments when you, you just assumed that you were just sad then and there rather than there was actually something wrong? Like when did it become a bigger picture, I guess, than just being sad? Yeah, when it became, when I could no longer hide it anymore, I realised that it had become much bigger than just being sad. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been hiding it it became like my biggest darker secret how you were feeling you mean yeah yeah, and what I was doing to control those emotions so um it became very obvious in my physical appearance because I was very very skinny and very undernourished uh I started fainting a lot because my body was so undernourished and I would have like heart palpitations and faint because I was just you know so doing so much damage to my body and mm. um, so a lot of people started asking me questions you know like what's going on what's wrong uh, and that's really when I I understood that it was it had become a little bit more than what I could handle and my parents found out around the time I was about 17 that I had an eating disorder um, we, I still didn't really understand why I was doing it um, and I started to seek professional help, help, help around that time. Mm-hmm. I was in and out of the doctors a lot, 
just because my body was not coping with everything that was going on. So in between my studies, I, I remember um, I had like final year exams and I'd go to hospital and I'd be put on an IV drip and I'd have to stay the night and then they'd have to let me out for a few hours to go and do my exams and then I'd have to go straight back to Far hospital. Out. And that sort of just became my life for quite a while. Um, but I and this was just due to how undernourished and stuff you yeah, what I was like, the effects it was having on my body. When you become bulimic, you um, lose a lot of the potassium in your body, and the potassium helps regulate your heart. So you can, if you're in severe risk of having like a heart attack, basically. Yeah. So I would be on heart monitors and then trying to regulate all of that. Crazy. <clears throat> so when you think back to, I know it's kind of hard to put yourself in certain places along the timeline of life, but when you think back to those moments, what sort of solace was, you know, your purging and stuff giving you to help you cope with what you were going through? I guess it took my mind off the underlying feelings that I was feeling. I I was never really, at this time I was still was not ready to accept that there was a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, there was still so much um, covering up, so much shame and guilt and resentment and embarrassment. It was... I, you know, you wouldn't wish this upon anything. It's a horrible, horrible disease. And it, it just takes over your life. And I mean, at the beginning, it was sort of to control my emotions that I was feeling underneath. But in the end, it began controlling my life. So 24 seven, my mind was focused on when I can get the next meal and purge or focusing on my every single thing that went into, into my body or trying to restrict myself from eating, you know, like, my thoughts were consumed by this addiction so there was no room for anything else to be felt really Mm. so I think it was just a way to cover up or suppress the feelings that I was feeling inside Um, and because I hadn't addressed those feelings I still didn't really understand where they'd come from why they were there uh, how I could uh, deal with them I, I, I didn't have much support there wasn't much support around then and there was no one else talking about this stuff um, back then, you know. I I continued to, to lie to my friends, to lie to my family. It was all a big manipulation game to try and hold on to this addiction because as long as other people thought that I was alright, as long as I showed an outward appearance that I was fine, mm. then no one could... There were none the wisest. Yeah, no one could understand what I was really going through. So you've mentioned covering up. What were some of the things that you were doing to hide your tracks or cover up what you're up to? That was a huge part of it. So a big thing I always try and tell people is that not everything is as it, as it, as it seems. Um, we're so crowded with social media and looking at people these days who have like the perfect image of put together um, that underneath that image there's a real person and that real person still has struggles you know they're still they might be in a really good place in their life but they've worked really hard to get to that place Um, and what I did to hide is I put an outward appearance that was perfected you know I would dress myself really well, I would, I, I developed these small addictions so that people thought that I was really well put together and, and no one would even like look at me and know the wiser. I developed all these little tiny um, routines of like brushing my hair a hundred times a day or like reapplying my makeup so that I looked perfect, you know, like I'd walk out of the house and my outfit had to be absolutely immaculate. So. I purposely put myself together really, really well so that no one would discover my secret. Yeah. And if you looked at my life from the outside, if you didn't know me personally, then, you know, it was like scrolling through a picture-perfect Instagram feed. Um, and that's, that's the way that I would, would deal with it. What about, like, when you'd go out for social stuff with friends or like or even eating family meals at home and stuff, how would you navigate around that with the purging side of it? Yeah. Um, again, it was very, very secretive. So if I, I would often avoid eating in those kind of situations with people that knew me, that understood what was going on. Um, 
my life became, my friendship life became very transient. So I pushed a lot of my friends that actually knew me and who were my loyal, like trusted friends from, from for many years. I pushed a lot of them away. Um, I isolated myself. Um, there's many years to, to go by that I actually moved to Indonesia. So I sort of ran away mm. from, from my family. I ran away from my friends who knew me. And that enabled me to live the life that I could to cover everything up. Um, so I lived in Indonesia for five years and that was a playground of um, parties, drinking, prescription drugs, transient friends. I could find a new group of friends every single night if I wanted to, to, to go out. And I projected this image of a, a happy, fun, carefree woman who had a a career in Indonesia um, and everybody wanted to hang out with me because to them I was just you know someone to go out and have fun with and yeah it seemed like I was very carefree had no worries lived in this beautiful island um, but inside it was just a totally different story I was so lonely so isolated I didn't have any family or real friends around me like I couldn't even trust myself like how could someone else like trust me and, mm. If anybody tried to get close to me, I would just cut them off and find a new group of friends, really. Um, yeah, that's, that's how I let it carry on for so long and how I, how I ran away from my real feelings, just by suppressing it. So you mentioned at the start that like your relationship with your family, you, you guys were pretty close growing up. Yep. You were quite a homebody, you know, you always wanted to be at home. How did that play out in terms of, because no doubt they would have approached you about certain things that they saw, um, but you've talked about not trusting externally and had a lot going on. How did that play out, your interactions with your family at the time when they were probably trying to help or trying, trying to find yeah. what's going on and maybe you're being a bit guarded? How did that, yeah? The family dynamics is really interesting and obviously it goes through a lot of stages throughout the different um, times, but at the beginning, because I was so secretive, I would not let them get close, so they, they didn't understand it. They were a little bit like me, where we didn't understand what was going on. We sought out a lot of professional help. My mum and my dad were so supportive. You know, they, they, they tried to do everything that they could to find a solution to help me, but we kind of just came like dead end after dead end after dead end and not knowing what was going on. Um, for 10 years, we didn't even know that it was mental illness you know but there was no there was nothing we'd never been told that word we'd never been told like depression and although i don't like labels sometimes it helps to understand the situation to yep. be able to to move on or, or to be able to get help um so for so long my parents were just at absolute loss of what to do you know i'm, I'm a mum now and i understand how horrific it would be to see your child suffering and to be pushed away and not be allowed in. And I did everything that I could to push them away and, and to hide the fact that I was really struggling and to, to not want, want to accept what I was going through and not accept help from them. So that was really the initial, initial stage from them. Um, they always were there, no matter what. Even like there were stages where they tried the tough love to cut me off, but you know they were they were still always there. The, the unconditional love was yep. there. My parents they all, always loved me no matter what. But I hurt them. I hurt them so much. I you know I would deceive them. I would lie to them. I would have parties in their house. I would I would manipulate them into ways to give me more money to support my lifestyle. I pretend that I was doing really well and going to therapy and, and doing yoga and meditation and, and, and they supported my lifestyle in Bali as long as they thought that I was doing doing well. But it was always just a manipulation game and I was so far in the illness at that stage that I I really had like I'd lost all sense of who I was. There was no truth, there was no values there. I would do things that I was never brought up to do and I just you know where did all that behavior come from mm. I had just there was there was no like essence of my true self I grew up as a sweet innocent young woman and I was raised to be this you know this person and you can it's so easy to to lose who your real self and the more you do it the harder it is to go back because you run in this vicious cycle 
you know, you have, you, you go out and you do these things and then you wake up in the morning and you grew regret everything that you've done and then you feel guilty and then all these feelings are piled on top of you and then the only way that you can get through that is to escape again. So you pick up the drink and you start drinking or you pick up the prescription drugs and it's the only way that gets you through. And so I got really trapped into that cycle, you know, it had been going on already for eight or ten years by the time I was living in Indonesia and I just, I couldn't see an escape. Um, but yeah, the relationship with my parents, there were, there were so many times where they had to come and they would always come and pick up the pieces, you know, there were times when I, I, I had like near-death experiences just for the, the times that I put myself so much at risk and they were always there to pick up the pieces, they were, they were constantly, you know, supportive and um, what we've been through now has made us stronger and once we started the actual healing journey it was paramount that my family were actually there and doing the healing journey with me too because we when I under, understood when I actually started to look at the reasons why I started to feel all these feelings and why all this had maybe developed um, I looked a lot into my like ancestry roots, I looked a lot into how my parents were raised, the feelings that they had um, projected onto them from their parents and it was then when I actually started to understand more of how my parents were raised and how they felt, I could understand the feelings that I felt growing up and being raised as a child and I could um, start to articulate the, the negative feelings and why I was, I guess, trying to suppress the feelings that I was feeling and a lot of them came from my childhood and being quite a sensitive uh, being, I really held on to a lot of those feelings that I felt like that were projected from my parents. Um, and so it really took our whole family to be able to heal and it's made us so much stronger, so much more understanding, so much more connected and I guess connected to not just our family but to the community around us. Um, we had it for a long time, you know, my parents were embarrassed to talk about it. We covered it up, we didn't want anybody to know. Everybody still thought our family was, you know, this picture-perfect family and, mm. um, and within our community. And now that we've actually opened up, I feel like we're able to heal more people in the community. We're making it not so taboo, we're talking about it, we've shared our story and we get so many people coming and, and, and asking for help and talking to my parents. And so it's actually opened up a huge floodgate of being able to to not only heal our family but to also heal like more of the people in the community as well awesome mm. so awesome you've, you've touched on a lot there so there's a couple of things we can speak about firstly um you mentioned that your your um you went to and saw, saw professional help and stuff like that how did that happen? Like, take us through that journey. Like, so for me, I'm imagining you going into a room with a counsellor or a doctor and you're sitting down and having a yarn about what's possibly going on. How, like, obviously I have no clue what happened. So, yeah, can you take us through whether I'm accurate or whether it's completely, I've got it completely wrong. Yeah. What, what, what goes on? There are so many different aspects to my healing journey. Yep. But at the beginning when I was younger, I was just seeing sort of like a counsellor. Um, and then it moved on to, to more therapy and psychotherapy from around the, the community. But there wasn't a lot of mu like much support in Taranaki when it first happened. Um, and like I said, like I wasn't really at that point of accepting that I had a problem. And so no matter what you do, no matter who you see, you're mm. not going to get better. I was so good at lying still. And so I'd pretend to my therapist that everything was fine. I was doing really well. Uh, all the same behaviour would keep continuing. Uh, so that kind of therapy continued for a lot of the years where I would go along and share my story. Just tick the box tick sort the of box, thing? Basically, it was just sitting in the room and I've come to realise that um, 
when you're dealing with these this type of mental illness I feel like a textbook therapist approach is not going to work um, it, it might for some people some people might just you know everybody's journey is different some people might just need to talk it out but the, the people that really helped me are the ones that had true life experience. They're the ones that have been there and gone through it and and understand what it's like. And, you know, they're those little angels that pop into your life and you don't know where they've come from, but they've, they've got that life experience and, and they help you through a stage that you... And you just click and you think, oh, wow, that's it. Um, when I was in Indonesia, I sought out a lot of alternative help yeah, you mentioned like yoga and meditation and yeah, stuff like that. Um, and that was probably one of my biggest lifelines. If I didn't have that in my life, I don't know if I'd still be here. I always had a really strong connection to my spirituality, like throughout the whole time. And my family has always had like a really strong pull to to spirituality as well. Like we were we were brought up with that kind of thing. We were brought up with meditation in the household. Um, and although I thought it was really weird when I was young and really embarrassed, so I was like, Mom, please don't do that when my friends come along. Um, it just made, it just made that, um, opening for me, and when I was really struggling, it was something that I came to my mum and asked more about and started to get into, um, and exploring a little bit more myself. So that was, yeah, that was really a lifeline. Um... The biggest change, and I think the, the turning point in my healing journey was when I hit rock bottom, like absolute rock bottom. I'd probably hit rock bottom before that, but this was like, <laughs> this was like <laughs> if you don't do anything, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, had, I had to leave Indonesia because my family had just said, like, this is enough. It had carried on for five years. They realised that they were supporting my lifestyle, which was not healthy. And they said, you're on your own now. So I had to leave. I couldn't support myself. I went to Bali. I mean, I went to, from Bali, I went to Australia and got a job. And I got a job as a nanny. And it, this would have been the worst time in my life, I think, of the feelings that I was feeling. Like, my parents had completely cut me off. I had absolutely no one. I had to start trying to support myself. I was in like high state of anxiety every single day. I just was not coping. Um, I don't even know how I got this job as a nanny, and I, I, just, <laughs> I, I obviously was. I could still put on my fake persona um, appearance and pretend that everything was fine, but I was on like a huge amount of anti-anxiety drugs during just to get me through the day. I was. I was uh, stealing, I mean, not stealing, but hiding alcohol in my room so that I'd just like drink bottles of wine to put me to sleep at night time. And then I was getting up and looking after these two beautiful, beautiful girls during the day before school and after school. Um, and I just can't believe that I was like trusted in their care with the amount of drugs and things that I was on. Uh, it was just the only way that I could get through. Um, and anyway, I was driving the kids to a birthday party one day and I was distracted by them in the back and I drove the car off into a trailer that was parked on the road mm. and when I woke up I had had to get cut out of the car and I woke up in hospital and didn't, didn't remember the incident. The girls were absolutely fine which was like thank God. Um, but that was when myself and my parents realized that this was like beyond us this had this had become so big that it was actually not my fault anymore like it was too much for me to be able to handle like there was i was either going to die um or we had to make like huge changes so my mum came over to australia to pick up the pieces again and she told me to go to a hotel because i was kicked out of the place where i was nannying obviously. Yeah. Um, so I went to a hotel until she arrived and mum found the hotel room just covered in alcohol bottles and me just incoherent on the ground like passed out and just covered in bruises head to toe from the accident and you know like I can't imagine what it would be like to be a mum in a situation like that. She, she probably thought I was dead like and, and like I said like now that I've got children that just it just mm. is 
uh, I can't imagine either ever having to go through that and seeing my daughter doing this to herself and the pain that she's going through. Um, so that was a huge wake-up call for my parents and myself. It had been going on for 10 years. Um, and yeah, it was, I'm going to die or we like really do something um, about this. And so mum took me home back to, to New Plymouth and coming home again was just, it was a huge knock to, to it was, it was when I started to realise the amount of pain I'd been putting my family through. I hadn't really understood it. You'd been away. I'd been away, but I'd also been so consumed in myself mm. that it was all about me. I didn't care what my parents were going through and their, their anxiety and stress and pain and everything of having an unwell daughter. And so living with them, I was actually able to see how it was affecting their life. Mm. And my dad had become sick, like he'd almost become mentally unwell himself because he was just so worried about his daughter. And when I was in that home, I just, all I could feel was this darkness. It, was, it felt like there was no, nothing left in me. It felt like I was possessed by like a demon or I had this like entity. That's how I would have explained it to people. Like it felt like there was an entity inside me controlling my thoughts and my body. And there was just like no, none of our left in, in, in the, like there was no true truth or essence of, of myself and me. And I could see this darkness and it was seeping into like my family and my friends around me. And everything around us just started to, to go really bad. It was just... This was after you came home? Yeah, this was when I came home. And that's when... Like, mean, what, I, like I, what sort of stuff? What started going bad? Everything just started falling apart. Like it just, it actually felt like there was a darkness in the house. There were like creepy things that were happening, and and like my dad's business started falling apart. Like everything just around us started to fall apart. Um, and and as a family unit as well, you know, there was just there was no connection there. There was nothing. It was there. It just felt like there was no hope. Uh, and that's when. I mean, I'd contemplated suicide before, but I didn't really think that I would could either go through it. And but it was at this time when I thought, like, I'd rather be dead. Like, I don't want to put my family through this anymore. I just couldn't see a way out, really. Mm. Um, and I left my parents a note, and I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I, I knew that I couldn't be in there anymore. I knew that I couldn't keep doing this to them. Uh, so I left them a note, and... I just left the house and I can't really remember what I was going to do or where I went. Um, but my dad actually had made a pact with me. He said that if, you, if you're living in Bali, you have to be on, like, you know, how you can have that find my, find yeah. my friend thing. He said, I always want to know, I always want to be able to, to be able to find you if I need to find you. And so my parents, thank God, they were they came home not long after that, and they found the note. And my my dad rang up the family, and they said like they said that this is the first time that they'd ever actually felt like pure panic. Like they thought that this was the end. And dad remembered that he'd had this on his phone, and they they found me not long after. And that's when they decided to ring the crisis team. And so the crisis team came and picked me up and took me to the mental ward here in Taranaki. And like I said, this was really the, the crossroad of my healing journey and when it really, really started to happen and when I started to get like proper professional help. Um, when I went to the mental ward here, I stayed there for about a week until we decided what we, were, we could do, like to explore our options. And I got a fantastic doctor, um, and he just understood it. And it was the first time that me and my family ever got any real answers. We it was the first time that we we heard the word like mental illness. That you know that that, that this is not her fault. This is just how she's dealing with life, and she hasn't had the tools before to be able to cope with the feelings that she's going through. And there is a way out. Um, and. So we started to explore options of rehab and that's when my rehab journey started. I flew down to Dunedin a week after the crisis team took me into the mental ward here and 
I went and lived in a, they called it a therapeutic rehab community down yeah. in Dunedin. And that was the first time I actually started to address the feelings that I was feeling rather than having the opportunities to, to run away from them. Um, I had to, to go through that journey. So with your, before we get into like, I guess the rehabilitation and kind of what that looks like, the crisis team, if you can remember, what happened, what, what did they do when they first got there? Because a lot of people have no idea what they actually do or kind of how they help out. So when, yeah. they, when they came, how did they... The crisis team is sent when really it's someone's going to take their life or, or it's really bad or, you know. Um, but my parents came to me first and asked me if it was okay. They didn't want to do it... Um, I guess they didn't want me to feel resentful towards them mm. if they called these people and I was taken and locked up out of my own will. But I'd come to that point where I'd just given up. I there was I couldn't see a way out, and I really just wanted someone to, to to help me at that stage. And so I agreed that they could ring them and they could come, and they were really they were really caring. Um, we had I my parents actually brought in another party as like a mediator. And it was another lady who had actually been through something similar to me. So it was really nice to have that support and understanding. And the crisis team just talked me through where they would take me, what would happen. Um, and I felt safe. Yeah, I felt the force. And that lady that, that mediated, yeah. did, you, did you connect with her right away or not? Mm. I'd already known her for quite a while. So it was nice to have that, that support. Yeah. And, and for my mum and dad to have that support as well because that's the thing like the the person struggling it's not just them that needs the support it's the whole family yeah, for you sure. know, the whole family's going through it and so she was able to understand what they were going through and and be there for them as well and you've mentioned obviously we're, we're kind of starting to talk now about your rehab journey and kind of what things were implemented what changed one thing that a lot of guests have spoken about and you've touched on it briefly as well, and perhaps it's going to open up now that we're at this stage of, of your journey, is the, the intergenerational trauma stuff. I've spoken to a lot of guests about this, and I guess I'd known about it, but I didn't know the term. Yeah. And so um, acknowledging that stuff and finding that stuff, was, that was part of your healing, obviously? Yeah, that was huge. So when I went down to this rehab, um, I started to explore the reasons why... I had maybe um, started suppressing my feelings and, and um, developing all these addictions and I really, I went back and I explored these, that my earlier childhood and I asked my parents a lot of questions about the ways that they felt when they were growing up and that and I really started to understand that when I was growing up I felt like there was a lot of pressure on me and a lot of pressure that came from my parents um, at the beginning there was a lot of blame on them I pressures for what like what what give me an example what sort of things were they pressuring you about um, like high achieving like, I I well, I always felt like there were really big expectations and that I could never do anything good enough and this is just the way that I was feeling. Mm -hmm. it, there, there was no truth in it at all, but it is the truth because that's the way that I was feeling. Yeah. And I understand that now. Um, so at the beginning there was a lot of blame and now there's absolutely no blame. But from discovering that and actually writing the letter to my father saying, you know, this is how I felt when I was growing up. I felt like there was always so many high expectations. There was, there was so much pressure. I could never do anything right. I felt like I was walking on eggshells. Yeah, she wrote a letter. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I felt like I was walking on eggshells around you when I walked into the room. I never knew what you were going to say to me. Um, and yeah, I wrote him a letter and that was probably the best thing that I could do because he, he came back, you know, obviously devastated that I, was, I, was, I had these feelings that he said, you know, this is exactly the way that my father made me feel. And that was the last thing that I would ever, ever, ever want to to portray onto to my children or my daughter. Um, but once I opened up that discussion, I was able to understand 
the pressures that he had as a young boy mm. and and to understand where those feelings might come from and then exploring it with my mum and we actually did like a whole lot of healing together over in Indonesia actually but we were seen as life coach um, and we went along for me obviously but the whole session ended up being about my mum and I that opened my eyes up to what my mum had to deal with with three children with a with a husband that was at work all day until late at the night and her raising three children with no support from her parents no support from the community like you know it, and it's hard I understand what it's like now with one child and to have three and to to be looking after a farm on her own to be and she said that I was the third child and she said that the, by the time that I was I came along she had so much resentment towards life that she was sort of just screaming inside and she would never show it outwardly but being like a sensitive child like I was I, I think that I probably took on a lot of those emotions that what she was was um, feeling and so we started to, to unravel the the family a little bit more and and to look at what my parents and grandparents had had gone through and there was a lot of there was a lot of addiction in the family there was a lot of mental illness like we've all got so many stories throughout and the the past generations have gone through so much to get to where we are what some of the things they've gone through obviously i don't expect you to speak to the individual because it's their story but I guess just just see some examples. I think anybody in general, like I'm not just saying my my family personal, but all our generations have gone through a lot. You know, all the all our fifth generation immigrated to New Zealand, and that was so hard. And just the wars that we've all gone through, and then no one really addressed their feelings after that. And I think that it's all sort of started from there, and it's trickled down into the next generations, and no one is they're addressing these problems and I know like my grandma passed away last year and understanding the emotions and the pain that she held on to just to protect her family was huge and she held on to all that and never talked about it because she didn't want to burden the family Mm. and I think that if you don't talk about it then it does it just keeps tripping on to the next generation and that's why I think that it's so huge that we can address these feelings and heal ourselves because if we do that then we are healing all the generations before us and then we are no longer passing those um, feelings on or or that conditioning on to to the next generation to our children so it's really up to us we have to do it and if we can heal ourselves and the community then this will no longer keep happening so that's really what I discovered when I yeah when I was in rehab when we were looking into the family and how was it seeing your your parents in their in their real vulnerable moments did that take you by surprise? We've always been, I mean, to an extent we've we've always been quite an open family in that, but. Uh, it's, it's it's hard to to say that because I guess like through everything we were really closed off and wouldn't let anybody see our vulnerable side. Mm. Um, so I don't know. It did, it didn't really take me by surprise because I think that we all knew. We knew. We all know that everybody's got that vulnerable side, right? Mm. Um, but it was just it was just nice to know that there was. It wasn't just me that was feeling these feelings and it was nice to be able to let go of that blame because no one wants to blame anybody else and and to just see it in the light just to see that you know as soon as you can start having compassion for someone else that's no longer all about you then then you can start to heal and, and understand oh well I, I'm not the only one that's feeling this everybody else is as well and I'm normal and and, and if you're feeling it then we we can do this together what about your siblings? Where are they in, in the whole context of your healing stuff or even going through and, and unearthing some of those things that have happened intergenerationally? What, what, yeah, what about them? Where have they been throughout all this? My sister played a big part. So she was the reason that I moved to Indonesia to begin with. Um, my parents had had an absolute enough and like I said, like I ran away to Bali. It was like that was another rock bottom point really. They had no more answers. They, we'd tried everything. 
Um, and my sister came back home for one summer. She actually lived in Indonesia and she just thought, saw how bad it was. And she, she kind of stepped in and said, look, mum and dad, like, you need a break. Al, you come and live with me. Um, so I lived with her for the first year and that became so toxic. She understood, wow, this is like more than I can handle. She could now see what my parents had gone through and how they'd become so sick and anxious and worried. And so and it started to bleed into her family. It started to ruin her relationship with her husband. Um, so after a year I moved out, but she, she played a big part. She's also, she's also on that like spiritual journey and, and um, she thanks me for everything that I've put her through, you know. And my family thank me now because they've just done so much growth. Um, from everything and we kind of we don't see it as my illness we see it as something that's helped our family evolve and grow and get that's through. huge yeah that's pretty cool and for for her to be a, and i mean because even even a whole year after i was um well two years even today these feelings of like guilt still come up you know it's, it's, a, it's i was gonna ask you about that yeah it's a huge process of having to rewire your brain and rewire your thoughts and and to get over the pain that you put through, um, put your family and friends through. And really it's just about forgiveness, but for them to be able to turn it around and see it as something positive makes that healing process and being able to move forward a lot easier. Um, they've accepted that, that it was our journey yep. and our family would probably be much more closed off um, not as open, yeah, we, would, we would be a lot behind in our growth to where we want to go, I guess. We, do you find like you guys can say anything and everything to each other now because like what worse could you do? Or? Yeah, we're very, very open. Um, I mean, my brother's a little bit sceptical of, I mean, he's great, he's amazing, he's always been there for me, but maybe a little bit more sceptical of the whole spiritual yep. um, journey, which is cool. We've all got, got to have that balance, yeah. Eh? <laughs> and it's nice. It's nice for him to to challenge us on that, and yep. yeah. But no, he's always been a solid rock for me as well, and always been there for me. So I've been extremely blessed in the family that I have in terms of support, and yeah, then I guess them being able to forgive me and and see it as as our journey together, not just as my own journey. Yeah. So in terms of your healing process as well, like you mentioned you cut off a lot of friends and stuff. Has there been any, I don't want to say reconciliation, but any kind of headway there? Is there any friends that you've been able to speak to now and kind of explain things a bit better or is is a lot of that happening too? Is this the first time I can say that there's not one friend that hasn't forgiven me? Um, Which is huge because... I there was obviously a lot of healing and reconciliation and uh, trust that I had to build back. It was like climbing a mountain again, and you can't do that overnight. You know, you have to prove yourself. And for fourteen years, I hurt people and pushed them away and 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 deceived them and lied to them. And after a year or two, I you know I was reaching out to friends and I was sharing my story and I was. I was trying to to make amends, really, and there were some friends that just couldn't understand it or couldn't accept it. Um, But I think sharing my story for the first time publicly, and it was very raw and emotional, and it got videoed and it it went up on Facebook and that, and since then, trickling in have been my friends that have spoken up and, and just said, you know, like I, I didn't understand the extent of everything that you were going were going through back then. I, you know, back then I was a teenager. I was, I was unaware, and I'm sorry that I wasn't there for you, and and it couldn't help. And and then, and there's no one to blame, and there's no one, and we all understand that now. You know, we were all teenagers that didn't have the understanding or the life uh, knowledge, experience. Yeah, experience yeah, yes. um, and so, I, I mean, I couldn't understand it myself. How is my friend going to understand it? Yeah. And I, it was me, really, the ones that were hurting them, but they understand that it was no one's fault. There's no one to blame. And, yeah, there's not one person that hasn't forgiven me, which is 
I mean, and I would say that's unheard of really in a, in a story of addiction and hurt and deceit and that to, to have everybody that I love and stuff back in my life. And yeah. Building it back. And what about that, um, the, the family with the, the children you were looking after? Have you spoken to them again once you've come out the other that's, side of things? That's an interesting question. I haven't been asked that one. Mm-hmm. No, I haven't. Um, there's a lot of people that I've reached out to, uh, especially like health professionals and people that have helped me throughout my journey because, you know, there's so many people that help you throughout the journey and then you kind of leave and then they never know what's happened to you yeah i can imagine it like rehab when people leave you know these people that work there they must always wonder wonder how is everybody going um i know when i pull over on the side of the road and have someone who's tires tires flattened or whatever yeah. i wonder if they got to their destination yeah. okay so i can imagine yeah, yeah. someone who spends time months and months with you yeah and i mean they're professionals so they can't go out and seek you and, yeah. and ask that kind of stuff um so i i really tried to get back to everybody that i could think of that um that i could let them know like where i am and what's happening in my life and, and to really thank them and show like my appreciation and, and how they actually really help because i can imagine that's huge for them i can imagine that that must be extremely hard and they must have a lot of cases that they can't help and so I think the positive ones have probably really helped them keep going and keep yeah. keep them doing what they're doing um, but no I have never I do they know what you're going through do you think or the family yeah no okay uh, I lived with them for about three months mm-hmm. and I mean they they definitely they definitely understood that I was not well by the end of it they I they would have known mm-hmm. that I um and I think that, like, talking to my parents and stuff, my parents communicated with them after everything that was going on. And so, yeah, they would have, by the end of it, they would have understood that there was addictions and, and things and that. And, um, but, yeah, I, I never personally have talked to them after. Yeah. No, I'm just interested to know because I made a note of it. And I kind of yeah. asked that one. So speaking of kids and sticking with that, you're a mum now. How has that been? <laughs> That's the best thing. I mean, I call him my, like, blessing. And this whole generational trauma stuff that I was talking about, I fell pregnant with Arlo really soon after. Like, I was still kind of in my healing journey. Mm-hmm. So me and Adnan had only been together for six months um, when we realised that we were pregnant and having Arlo. Um, and that was just like a fast track. It just completely took me out of my own head and it was like an instant switch where nothing else mattered. I just wanted to be as clear and as healthy and as focused and as, you know, the, the best mother that I could be to bring this like child into the world. And I didn't want to be holding on to anything else. I didn't want any like guilt or resentment or, or none of the stuff that I'd gone through to, to affect him. So that whole time that I was pregnant, I just focused on just accelerating my healing journey, really. Yep. And I just I just think that he just came into my life, into Adnan's life, to, to help us propel that forward and to keep us together. Because, to be honest, like, the healing journey was never linear. And after meeting Adnan, I, like, I really struggled integrating back into like society and normal life after rehab. I went to live in a Buddhist centre for three months, which was amazing. Um, and that's when I actually met Adnan while I was living in the Buddhist centre. He wasn't there, but... <laughs> he, wasn't he wasn't at the Buddhist centre? No, he wasn't at the Buddhist centre, but... He wasn't, Where was this? this was, he lived in Auckland, so I would, I would go to Auckland often in the weekends. So we, we actually met on Tinder, that's how we met. Yep. Um, so... Yeah, like everything sort of fast-tracked, but when I moved to Auckland to be with Adnan, um, it was really hard adjustment, you know, going from rehab to the Buddha centre and then like getting back into real life mm. and trying to like integrate back into normal People society. probably don't talk about that enough properly because, nah. I mean, I'd, I obviously understand now that it would be a big thing to do, Yeah. but the 30 seconds before you said that, I that wouldn't have even been on my mind. So let's talk about that. Yeah. And how, how was that? Auckland was a huge shock. And I think that all those feelings, because I had I wasn't strong enough in like the rewiring of the brain by then, and like my thoughts and stuff, a lot of the old thought patterns started to sneak back in. Um, 
I've, I started comparing myself a lot to people, you know, like searching for a job in Auckland and, mm. and, and being like working for myself for five years and not really having much like experience to like to a complete blow just to not even be able to get like a job in retail and stuff like that and so all those like dark thoughts like started to creep back in and although I realized that I didn't have addictions to like alcohol and and drugs they were just like a cover-up of the feelings that I was feeling um they were my way of escape so as soon as those feelings started to come back in, it was the first thing that I did. You know, I just turned back to the bottle and I went straight back to the doctor and said, I'm not coping, like, give me what you can give me. And that was just really a downward spiral from there. And so I relapsed. I think I relapsed a couple of times um, when I was on Auckland and then and actually even kicked me out and I went back home and I did another detox at my mum and dad's. But because I'd had that time in rehab and the understanding and because I'd had that like beautiful three months in, in the Buddha Center, I had all those tools, I, I had I had discovered my true sense again. Mm-hmm. It was just not strong enough. And so this last time felt like totally different than any other time. And this time I felt like maybe I had been holding on to this idea of being with this, this guy and, and seeking validation and love again from an outsider where I wasn't finding that within um, and then all these things that I was doing comparing myself to all these other people in Auckland and not getting the job and that you know it was all outward stuff again and all the stuff that I had learned during my time was that it really has to come from inward you know mm-hmm. you have to love yourself before someone else can love you or before you can have the the confidence to go out there and, and do what you love and, and, and find that passion and, and your truth and so this time to get better I didn't do it for anybody else whereas I think that I probably had been doing it to to prove to other people that I could do it mm-hmm. um, but this time it came from me and it has to come from you and I realized that I might not ever get the love of my life back. I might have been kicked out forever, but if that was the case, then I would still be okay on my own, you know? Like, I could still move on, I could love myself, and I could be a good person, and I, I was still young, I was still, I was only 27, I could still have this amazing life ahead of me. And so that was really the, the switch was that, yeah, I was no longer doing it for anybody else. It was, it was for me, and I wanted to live life. Yep. So it was the first time I felt like I really actually wanted to live life and wanted to have a future. Um, yeah. Cool. With all your experience um, in, in rehab arenas and, and going to the Buddha Centre and stuff like that, what are like one or two things that people can implement to, to help them stay balanced? Yeah. That you've learned? It all, like, you strip it back to the basics, really, mm-hmm. because, like I mentioned, like, we get crowded by so much in this world these days, and if I can think back to the moments when I'm truly happy, it's the, it's the simple things, it's the things that you, you're doing with your family or your friends, and, you know, it's a walk in nature, and, and it's about finding, it's about finding your true self, so nothing ever is going to make you happy if you're trying to find it outwardly um you just have to look within and although it sounds like so cliche it's Mm. the only place that it's ever going to come from so you just you just have to find your truth and and it's connection if you don't have connection to yourself then you're never going to have connection to anybody around you or in in this world And, and that's what it's all about that's what i've learned is especially when i went down to rehab um i wasn't connected to myself but it was it was through seeing other people's stories and struggles, I was able to make that connection with other people and realize that we're not in this alone. We're all, every single one of us struggles. No one can escape it. Um, But before I was so consumed in myself, there was no room for anybody else. Um, But once I made that connection to myself and that connection to others, then that's when the real healing started. So find that connection. Cool. And you've talked, you've touched a little bit on meditation as well. Mm-hmm. What is meditation to you? Because everyone's got different versions and 
different things. Do you practice it on the regular? Or? I do, yeah. yeah. I mean, it goes through flows. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm much better at doing it and others I'm not. Um, sometimes, for me, it's just about, again, it's about stripping back all those layers and it's that connection to my truth. It's the only way that I can remove all the clutter and the thoughts in the world and bring myself back to me and my truth. And by saying me, that that me or that I am or whatever that is, it's not just me, like it's everybody. It's that connection to, to humanity really. Um, because we're not individual beings, we're all here on this journey together. Um, but yeah, to be able to have that silence and just, just to strip everything off and, and find that balance and that truth again is, is the way that I use it. What does it look like for you? So do you, so a bunch of people like to sit in busy places, some people like to sit alone, they like do it with friends. What does it look like practically for you? A uh, quiet place, mm-hmm. which is hard to find these days with a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, yeah, I, mums I, can barely so, go to the bathroom by themselves yeah, alone. Yeah. at the moment the um, guided meditations are, are quite good for me not not necessarily guided but I use the, the Deepak Chopra and Oprah Winfrey ones are really good um, but often I just I, I sit there and just I need my own space, I like to light incense or a candle and, and just have that, that quiet time for myself cool so the question I ask everyone that comes on board um, on the podcast is, look, there's someone out there listening right now who's in a bit of a dark place, bit of a hole. Um, bear in mind, you're not a medical professional, but as we've spoken about, you've sounds like you've journeyed to that place more often than some. And what would your advice be to them or what's something that you would recommend or, yeah? Yeah, listening to stuff like this is great. I think that... As soon as I started to listen to other people's stories, that um, enabled me to not feel so alone and not to feel so outcasted and to understand that this is something normal that we all go through. Um, but to to be open about it, to talk to people about it, because it's only through that openness and, and, and acceptance or acknowledging it, that it's there, that's when we can start to move forward. Um, but like I talked about, there's no, there's no one else that can do it for you. Um, you might be in a stage where you do need support, whether that's rehab or counselling or a therapy or a friend to talk to. You know, everybody's at different stages um, and that support is great, but ultimately you need to look inside and, and it's that connection that, that will help you through. And, yeah, you've just, you've really got to find that connection. Cool. And I always let my guests ask a question themselves. What's something you want to ask listeners or you want to put out there? Maybe you want to challenge them a bit or just anything you'd like to ask to, to put out in the public domain for people to consider. Because I always watch TV or listen to stuff and there's always questions I feel that aren't being asked. Yeah. So what's something you would like to ask? I, at the moment, I'm really focusing on... Um, teenage women, lady girls, and my question is, how can I be of help and support to the community, our community in Taranaki? What is the best way that I can be of support to help young women that might might be struggling, like I was back back when I was fourteen? Um, yeah, how how can how can we as a community? put something together like a support group that can help these younger women. Cool. And final word, anything you want to leave with? Anything you want to say? I just think that it's so important that we share your story. So um, I feel so much gratitude for you doing doing what you're doing. And so thanks, thanks. For, for sharing your time and talking to me. Uh, honestly, as, as I was saying to you outside before, like the, the, the fact that people are taking time to, to sit with me and have these conversations, I definitely think the conversation's worth having. We're probably not having enough of them, uh, but time's something we never back to, so I appreciate your time as well. Thanks, Eva. There you go. I'm sure you would have taken a lot away from that. Um, not only, I guess, the mistakes that were made and, and what to learn from them, but also, I feel anyway, one of the big things I took away from it is that no matter what goes on, you can always bounce back 
and you can always win again by imparting your journey onto others so they don't replicate your mistakes and if they do they know how to bounce back from them too um, once again I want to send a big mihi out to Al for sharing her uh, incredibly touching story for stepping into a vulnerable, vulnerable space and, and trusting me uh, yeah, it was, it was absolutely nuts and that, that conversation definitely still sticks with me to this day so as again whānau as we always do with every episode please 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 go and check us out uh, on the Spotify on Apple go see us on Facebook on Instagram make sure you're leaving your comments your reviews if there's anyone you want me to be talking to if there's anyone that you think has an incredible story that needs to be shared make sure you're letting me know um, that's what this whole thing is about we want to empower people to be in a comfortable place to share at the same time we know that empathy and understanding can help people destroy the barriers that exist and you know some of the things that we think keep us separate from people some of the dramas that we go through some of the things that hit us in this life in our lives we think that makes us weird and makes us unrelatable it actually binds us together more than you think so please 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 let me know all right there's another episode down for best side we'll catch you at the next one peace